Good morning. It's so good to see you. <clears throat> uh, just real quick, that song is what the, the message is about today. It's, we could just sing that another 30 minutes, I suppose, but I'll give it a little context. But that's really the thrust. Uh, I, I can really sing that song because I'm, I'm so to speak, uh, preaching to myself when I sing that song. That's, that's who I want to be. I think that's who you want to be in the Lord. You know, you want to tr trust him. Uh, you want him to be the first one you turn to, not the last one, not the last resort. You want his love to reign in your life, you know, with the hardest people in your life to love. It might be the stranger, it might even be uh, your child, your parent, your spouse, a sister, a brother. You want Christ to make a huge difference in your life, you know. Because when you're a grown-up, you quit playing games. That's when you really start living, you know, say... I'm going to get serious about this business of following Christ with all of its joy. You know, getting serious doesn't mean you aren't joyful. And the love that you give, you know first. That's where faith comes in. You receive, you embrace, you're died in that love of Christ. And so that love leeches out. When people touch you, they get Christ's love all over their hands. They smell his breath on you. When you walk into a room, the love of Jesus Christ enters with you. That's that's the church, boy, when, when everybody's singing that song and living that love, it's a powerful thing. It's not a Sunday thing only. It's an everyday thing, an every moment thing. But for that to be true, you've got to trust the Lord on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, not just in the gaps, because you need to know his presence. That's what we're all, you never graduate from that in this world. You never outgrow that need to depend and know the presence of Christ. The practice of the Christian life is living that more and more and more. When things go wrong, the first thing you do is you start talking to the Lord. And that peace settles upon you. And all of a sudden, what, what was so frantic is put into perspective in its proper place. And you have a peace. You're not trying to force things. You're trusting the Lord. You let go and let God. Well, anyway, I, want, I do have a sermon to preach this morning, so I, I want to thank you. <clears throat> I certainly want to thank our boards, our elders, our deacons, our pastoral staff, 
And uh, a special thanks to Pastor Tim for picking up any slack, um, giving me the freedom uh, to be with family and uh, at Christmas time. And, uh, and even last, uh, last week I came up, I had my suit on. I was raring to go. Um, but Tim could tell uh, I was still struggling with this shoulder problem, so he said, look, I, I can handle this, which of course I know he can. But um, I said, okay, thanks. I appreciate that. That means the world to me. Um, also, thank you for the Christmas cards. I love those Christmas cards. Shelly, as they come in the mail, she, uh, after she looks at them, she's, they, you know, they become a little pile by my chair, and then when I sit in that chair every, you know, later after dinner, I look at your Christmas cards. I look at you, pictures of you. And I have that whole stack in my office. Um, I really do kind of reflect on what God's doing in your life, uh, the beauty of your family, uh, the soul I see in those pictures. Christmas cards are, are very special. Um, if you're wondering, if you're that one or two people who think wonder why I didn't send you a Christmas card, well, that's because I don't send any Christmas cards. So I do that just because um, I don't have the means to give everybody a Christmas card that I want to give a Christmas card. So here's a big Christmas kiss, belated. Mwah! All right. Our sobering saying of Jesus, uh, if you haven't been with us, we're in a, uh, a series, <clears throat> even up to Christmas, uh, we called the Christmas series uh, the sobering sayings about Jesus, but uh, the series itself is the sobering sayings of Jesus, and our sobering saying of Jesus may be familiar to you. Let me know if you haven't said this. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. How many of you have said that? How many of you are hearing that for the very first time? I, please, let me see your hand. You're just, you've never heard that. Okay, interesting. Listen to it from Jesus. This is in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. Whenever evening comes, it said, it will be fair weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today because the sky is red and overcast, or the sky is red and darkening. Before smartphones, before Doppler radar, and satellite technology, reading the signs of whether it's going to be sunny or stormy was critical for sailors, for shepherds, for farmers, even for religious leaders. <clears throat> 
<laughs> Let's look at this uh, in context. Let me read Matthew 16, 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the sky, the appearance of the sky, literally the face of the sky, the countenance of the sky. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Did you notice that? Everyone needed to read the weather even the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When evening comes, you, you, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite, uh, we've got a problem here, NASA. Okay, it will be, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather because the sky... That's not their fault. That must be mine. You know how to interpret the appearance, the face of the sky. Maybe you could stop it right there for me. Assert your overreach and your power. I need you. This is not specialized knowledge. Uh, it's everyday, fair weather, um, I mean, it's everyday important indicators, pointers that help people regulate their lives, live a, a safer life because they are acquainted with the signs. Um, today, uh, I mean, unless, unless you're planning a, an outdoor wedding, or a picnic, uh, we don't give much thought to the weather, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of more of a curiosity than a necessity. Um, right now, it's 49 degrees and sunny. But back then, it was essential. Even 1,500 years later, Shakespeare, in his poem, Venus and Adonis, from 1592, wrote this, Like a red morn that ever yet betokened, wrecked to the seaman, tempest to the field, sorrow to the shepherds, woe unto the birds, 
gusts and foul flaws to herdmen and to herds. You see, we are not exposed, really, to the weather, except to dash from the front door, maybe to the car, or from the car to the entrance of the store. We lead comfy, temperature-controlled lives. And the signs, the signs are, are signs of convenience. A lot of signs we don't even pay attention to. There are signs everywhere in this world that are put there. You know, we call it signage. Like, how many of you look for the exit in this room? And yet there are exit signs at every exit telling you this is the way out so that you don't bump your nose in the middle of the wall. In other words, signs, signs of the weather, signs of the real world, the rude, harsh, brutal world that just, we seem like we're the Lord of the world because of the comfort of our lives, the control that we assert, signs there to help us. We don't even pay attention to them because we really don't, in a lot of cases, in most cases, need those signs. So, what are we, modern, comfy, middle-class Americans, to make of this passage? Well, I think we need a good weatherman. Not just for the physical weather, but for the weather of our lives. The parched times, the, the thorny times, the stormy times. We don't often pay much attention. We certainly don't think of our inner life as a world of weather, some sunny, a lot stormy. And it is the wreckage of those storms, our inability to navigate this outer life, which no matter how much control we moderns assert, there's an inner life where we really need a good weatherman. And when the weather on the inside is sunny, usually the way we navigate the outside world is sunnier as well. Jesus tells the religious leaders, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. Let me see if I can, yeah, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Before we go any further, let me just say a, another word or two about signs and wilderness or desert. Um, wilderness and desert represents, uh, so to speak, the wasteland of the world. It's, it's, I mean, it's the rough and tumble world. It's not the civilized world. It's, it's not 
the world of the city, it's the urban, not it's the rural, not the urban world. It's not the world of the city, but of the landscape. And literally, through the Bible, there are desert experiences for God's people. That was quite literally the case in the Old Testament when God led his people out of Israel. He wanted to lead them into the promised land, a land described as land of milk and honey, uh, but the people uh, were afraid to follow him, and so they, they ran in circles for 40 years. And that was a wilderness time in their walk with God. But they learned that all of their needs, all of the provision that was necessary for life was to be found in God. Because in trying to find it elsewhere, uh, that created fear in their lives. We have to battle those things, those same things in our lives. Um, Everyone around it. Isn't it interesting? We live in a world... This week, just as a thought exercise, pay attention to how many commercials. When you go to a web page, how many links and pop-ups, how much phishing is going on. So much of our time is interrupted. So much of our space is occupied by people peddling things that they say we need. We, are, we must be the most needy nation on earth. And yet, supposedly, we're the richest. And when all of those needs being offered to us supplant, take the place, nudge, nudge God out of our lives, they become a substitute deity for us. And when those things are threatened or we don't feel we have enough, we experience fear. We rely on those gods, if you will, to perform magic, you know, quick and easy, without any suffering or difficulty. Life handed to us playfully. Those become substitutes for dependence, reliance, trust in the Lord. We expect God to be like a a commercial provider of some service. And when God doesn't deliver, well, I'm not going back there anymore. We treat God like a merchant because we want to tell him and the whole world, I know what I'm doing. I know what I need. I know what I want. I know where I'm going. I know what life's all about. 
so fall in line. And if you don't, talk to the hand. That's an old expression now, isn't it? <laughs> Signs are messages, indications, pointers to help us safely find our way. And so, we need to pay attention to the signs, especially the spiritual signs. We don't want to be like cats, ignoring the signs. Jesus is the greatest sign. And more importantly, he's God's sign, the sign the sign of signs. So, how foolish to have this sign and this provision in our desert places daily and ignore the Lord in our relationships. I, I, I've been in pastoral ministry a lot of years. I think it's about five now. I hate telegraphing my age, but anyway, yeah, over 40-some years, I've, I've learned a lot because I've kept growing. If you really want to grow in the Lord, then start discipling someone. I really mean that. There are people in your life that desire to know more of Christ and would love to meet with you and learn from you what you're learning from the Lord. And to go to the Word with you and discuss the Word of God. And to get on their knees with you and pray. But the funny thing is, is that somewhere along the line we got the idea that we need a professional. You know? Get the sheriff. I'm not the sheriff. We're all in this. You don't need a contract. You just need to love and care and get to it. And you want to grow in Christ? You'll really start taking all this stuff seriously when you're working with somebody on a regular basis because it will not only energize you, but it will challenge you to be that person that you are together looking at in the, in the Word. So I, I strongly encourage this. Husbands, try this. Disciple your wife. Wives, disciple your husbands. It doesn't mean just telling them what to do. Go read your Bible and report back. <laughs> Leaders lead. Quit standing on the sideline and waiting for the people in your lives to get their lives all together. You show them the way. You show them how to live the Christ-like life. You inspire them. That's not descriptive. That's a challenge. You inspire them. Create a thirst in their life for what you have in Christ. 
All of that is discipling. Your life is a discipleship. That's a pretty amazing thought, isn't it? Do you think Jesus was a sign of God? Do you think Jesus was the Son of God just at certain moments? Oh my goodness, I've got to be Jesus right now. Everybody's expecting it. I'd love to just stay in bed today. I don't want to be Jesus today. Hmm. This is a life. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're empowered by that same Spirit. Think about that. The church is the Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered people of God. This is not just a business. When I go into the wilderness, by the way, it was in, the, in scouting and in mountaineering that I heard red sky at night, red sky in the morning. Those signs meant something. I used to solo, but I prefer to go with others, to share in those experiences. This world is a wilderness. It is a desert. God wants his people to depend on him, to look to him for provision, to realize that he is the true satisfier of soul and life. But he doesn't want us to do that alone. He wants us to do it together. That's the church. That's the purpose of the church. A lot of people in America think the church is, is like a storefront. You got your TJ Maxx or we're, we just go out shopping. And when they go to church, kind of in and out, you know. There's no connection, no desire to come alongside one another because we're disciples and we're discipling and we're all following Jesus and we're all in this together. I love this church family. The last thing in life that I want is for something to happen to my wife. Not only does she mother me, and if you don't like what I'm wearing, you have to blame me because Shelley didn't dress me. But I love my wife. We have a wonderful relationship. She's my best friend. But I, she, she carries a lot of the, she shoulders a lot of important things in our life. She is a, an equal in this marriage with me. If I lost her, I would lose half of me, and the other half would be in 
serious jeopardy. So I'm hoping to die first. She would probably say the same about me. But if she did die, I know my church family would be there for me. If I'm just in and out of the, out of the building and not our lives one day a week, like popping in for a movie. You don't build the relationships that God wants you to have. You don't learn about the deep things of God, the provision of God, the, how the Spirit works, how deep is His love. These are the things that we're talking about. These are the things of this wild world, this wilderness world, this desert world, this world that we're really not exposed to. How many of you launch out into the wilderness, go up into these beautiful mountains for a week with just a, back, a backpack on your own? It's sobering because you realize what the world is really like outside the city. Farmers know this, but I tell you, if you go even further, you realize this world is a dangerous place physically as well as in terms of what society offers. We need the church. We need each other. We need to disciple, and we need to be discipled, and we need to depend on him and to trust him, not as a last resort, not when your watch breaks and you can't Get the temperature, or there's a leak in your roof. You need to realize that we need this weatherman, Jesus, 24-7. Let me see if I can get it, bring up another. Make Jesus your weatherman. I don't know if I like that, but it said something to me this week. Maybe it'll say something to you to realize that Jesus is the sign. He'll help you read the signs of life. He'll help you manage the weather inside and out. The religious leaders, they act like they're open to Jesus, but they aren't. They came to test him in verse 1, it says. But here's the really ominous thing. In verse 1, you read these words. Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, that doesn't seem at odds for us, probably, but this is the most unholy marriage you can imagine. Uh, it's shocking to me that Pharisees and Sadducees would come united to question Jesus. Let me tell you very quickly, Pharisees were like the working class and chiefly associated with the synagogue. 
Sadducees were the wealthy, landed, aristocratic, priestly class and associated with the temple. Pharisees accepted the whole Bible, the Torah, the first five books. Sometimes we call it the Pentateuch and the prophets and what they knew of the writings at that time. The Sadducees, they would have none of that. Only the first five books of the Bible. Can you imagine these two religious groups trying to debate? We don't recognize the prophets. Don't don't quote the prophets to us. They're not authoritative. Only the first five writings. And it must be written. The Pharisees, on top of that, they had an oral body of teaching and their legal or, so to speak, academic interpreters of God's word. And out of that came practices. They considered it law equal to the Bible. It was called oral law. And they meticulously lived their lives daily by that. And the Sadducees would have none of that. The Pharisees believed in angels. In other words, they believed in a supernatural world. They believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They did not believe in an afterlife. Remember in Acts chapter 23, verses 6 through 10, Paul's kind of in a court setting. And the courtroom, the people that count, the people who are going to, like the jury, is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. Can you picture that? Could you picture a jury with Sadducees and Pharisees? And let's imagine Paul, he's, he's making his own defense. So there's the judge and the jury, and Paul's speaking to all of those assembled, and he, it dawns on him. He realizes, wow, there's about half Sadducees and half Pharisees here. So what does Paul do? He says, people... I'm a Pharisee. I believe in the resurrection, and I am on trial for my beliefs in the resurrection. And the whole court blows up and starts arguing. And the last verse of what I told you, verse 10 of this little picture scenario, in verse 10 it says, the two factions became violent. The Pharisees were not political. They were willing to live under the Democrats or the Republicans. It didn't matter to them who controlled the House and who was sitting in the White Office, the White House office. What mattered was that they were free to pursue their religious beliefs. The Sadducees? Sadducees were very political. They, in fact, were a political party. They did collaborate with the political powers that be. 
They wanted to support certain political powers, and they lined up behind them and worked with them. Lastly, Pharisees longed and looked for a Messiah. The Sadducees did not. They did not believe there was a Messiah coming. Now, how do these two people, if you will, how does the Pharisees on this side and the Sadducees on that side, how do they get together and go to Jesus and ask him, show us a sign from heaven? Have you heard that old expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? This tells you how resistant they were to Jesus. They opposed Jesus. And what helped them to lay down their weapons that they carried against each other was because they were united in opposing Jesus. So, yeah, Matthew's right. They tested Jesus with this sign. They're closed to Jesus. I think I put these points up. They act like they're open. They're closed to Jesus. They don't really want a sign. They just want the status quo. Did you hear that? They don't want a Jesus. They want the status quo. They want things as they've always been. And sometimes that's what gets into us. Our lives are in such a mess, we turn to Jesus. He creates a peace, a harmony, a wholeness, a healthiness. And then we want that as a status quo, and we're stuck. And we don't grow anymore. And Jesus is all about change. Because we, we're not perfect, and we never make it. Jesus prayed too great a price to put a, a price tag or a terminal limit on perfection. You will... This is a new year. Here's a, here's a pro tip. Become comfortable with the words, I was wrong. I'm sorry or something like that. Because when are we not wrong? I hope I'm better than I was when I started out with Jesus. But I know I'm not perfect. I know my thoughts. I know my desires. I know my selfishness. I need Jesus. He didn't just save me once. He saves me once for all. And it is for all that we need to depend upon him as Savior. They get no sign except the sign of Jonah. And the key words are evil or wicked and adulterous generation. What is that about? 
That's kind of a nasty thing to say. You name caller. Well, it's rooted in the Old Testament. And the key word for us is adulterous because adultery is not about sexual purity. It's about spiritual purity. It's about the people being faithful in their reliance and trust upon God. God the Creator has been abandoned. Everyone in Jesus' contemporaries, this generation, he says, all of us out here, (laughs) we're cheating on God. And really, it's not changed. It's just as relevant in our own day and society. It's really about repentance. It's about change. And uh, that's what the word repentance means. You know that, don't you? It means change. I read a a quote on a guy tweeted, you know, people use aliases on Twitter. His, His alias is Watchman which I thought was. This is what he wrote. Repentance is not when you cry, but when you change. And that's really true. Sometimes we think repentance means I need to cry. I need to feel bad. I need to know regret. I need to look back and see all my failings. That's not repentance. Repentance is not crying. It's changing. You cannot change on your own. You need the Lord to inspire you. You need the Lord to energize you. You need the Lord to draw you out of yourself into the bigger and greater and more fantastic things that he has in store. I'm going to conclude with a wise man, and this is what he said, count yourself blessed if you can change one life today. Consider yourself wise if that life is your own. Do you know who said that? Our own Corey Ogborn. Sometimes there's wisdom just like that, but it takes a person to look at it and see it and learn from it, and that's what Jesus is asking of us. Will you stand? Let me pray for us. I'll be up here along with pastoral staff, elders, deacons, or spouses, if you'd like to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son. We want to become like him. Your goal for us is to become like him. Help each of us to follow and trust and depend on him, our true weatherman. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.